0: We've already established, I think, hopefully, with good reason, that Galatians, this book, is perhaps one of the most, if not the most, explosive book in the entire New Testament. It might have that crown. I think that's easy to see as as we're reading, as hopefully as you are following along, you can see that each line that Paul writes is written with a sense of urgency behind it. Which, of course, is understandable as we've established. The gospel is under threat. It's in danger of being lost. And as is obvious from the first three chapters that we've been through, uh, it should be clear by now that there is absolutely nothing that we can either add to or take away from that wonderful gospel. The good news that God has given us through Christ, there's nothing we can add to that or take away from that that doesn't end up just ruining the whole thing. Adding to the gospel, or trying to change it in some way, modify it, and just even the slightest of ways nullifies the whole thing. And this is exactly what Paul is trying to communicate, both to the churches at Galatia, but also to the teachers that were influencing them wrongly. Of course, they were Falling prey to the deceitful teachings of that group that we've called the Judaizers. These guys who are legalistic Jews who were trying to add works and performances and laws back onto the declaration of God's forgiveness through his son. Their concepts of the Judaizers, concept we could say, of religion was perhaps a a safer, more acceptable view of it, since it focused on laws and rules as opposed to grace. But the thing that, that I think Paul, Paul is trying to point out, that he's trying to argue for, is that this wasn't just a matter of a, a difference of opinion, so to speak. What's happening here is not that you are saying, okay, Paul, you might interpret things one way, but we're going to interpret them another, and we just have to agree to disagree. That's, you know, let's just agree to disagree. That's not what, the, what was happening here. And Paul is... It's trying to say that we can't just agree to disagree because you're going to lose the whole thing. To lose justification, right standing, this gift of righteousness to those who don't deserve it. That gift of justification by faith in Christ is to lose the faith altogether. As Paul has said in Galatians 2:16 that wonderful verse that we've read multiple times but it serves as so crucial to what he's saying as he says Galatians 2:16 yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ so we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. You can't change that, Paul's saying, without ruining the whole thing. Essentially, uh, we could say what Paul is trying to get across is, Judaizers, you're trying to throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. You're trying to just throw out the whole system by trying to add just the, the, the least smidgen of this whole thing being on our shoulders. So we could say what, what moves the pen of Paul, if you will, as he's writing this letter, is not just a desire... To prove the Judaizers wrong. He's, Paul is not a theological mercenary. Where he just goes around looking to pick doctrinal fights with people. That's not Paul. He was a pastor. And he was earnestly. And he was genuinely. And he was deeply moved. And he was caring for these to whom he was writing. He cared deeply. And he was concerned deeply for the souls of these Galatian believers. And and that's why we could say his objective in this letter is to bring them back to what is true and to what is solid and to what is firm and to what is certain. He's trying to bring them back to the word of God. You've been told this by these group of teachers and they've just gone off onto all these different directions of what they're trying to teach you. But they've missed the word. They've forgotten what was most true of God's revelation of redemption. That's why we went through chapter 3 and he talks about how often the Judaizers missed the point. And as we've noted before, Paul's tone might come across as gruff or, or very coarse And just so you know, as as we go forward, it's going to get a little bit gruffer in that sense. But don't mistake Paul's bluntness or his his coarseness, so to speak, for uh, indifference or a lack of concern. He calls them fools in chapter 3 because he loves them. (laughs) Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's put a spell on you? He says that because he cares for them. His affection runs that deep that it will stop at nothing to prevent them from doing or believing or clinging to something utterly foolish and eventually something ruinous. As we noted in chapter 3, we went through a couple weeks ago. One of the most serious errors and flaws that, that that Paul points out is that the Judaizers were misunderstanding, they were misreading, they were misinterpreting what the Old Testament was trying to say. The abiding testimony of Scripture. This is key. The, 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 the testimony of God's word from the beginning to even now today, but even in Paul's day, was this wonderful showcase wherein God unilaterally promises grace given to, yes, even the faithless and the undeserving. And Paul says that began even back with Abraham because he was counted as righteous just by believing. <laughs> Remember, we went through that long before the law, long before the institution of circumcision. There was no way that Abraham could make himself right with God, but God gave him a promise. Abraham believed in Galatians 3.6, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. And Paul is is saying the same thing, that when you and I, yes, sinners, when we sinners who are not part of the family of God, we are Gentile sinners. When we believe in Jesus Christ as the true and the better fulfillment of all of that promise given to Abraham, we too are counted as righteous in the same way that he was, by faith. We are baptized, as Paul said, wonderful words, baptized into Christ by faith and then therefore we are justified we are accepted we are approved in his sight we are brought into right standing with God the Father we have been made to put on Christ those are Paul's words at the end of chapter 3 wonderful words we are dressed in his righteousness alone And therefore, we are welcomed, we are embraced as those who belong to the family of God. And when we turn to chapter 4, this. It's exactly what Paul is not only picking up, but pressing even further into this idea of belonging and uh, being identified in Christ. And it's not because he wants to beat a dead horse, so to speak. He's not trying to belabor this point by any means. But what he wants uh, very clearly and very definitively, definitively is for the Galatians to see just how unthinkable, just how unfathomable it would be for them to lose sight of who they are in Christ. And that's what was happening. They're losing their identity. They're losing who they are. Not only because of Jesus, but losing who they are in Jesus himself. By believing these deceitful doctrines of what the Judaizers were trying to tell them, they were losing who they are. As he's just said, Galatians 3.29, wonderful, amazing verse. And if you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What does it mean to be an heir? Paul's going to pick up on this theme also in Romans 8. As we've noted before, Romans and Galatians are wonderful books that essentially say the same things but slightly different ways. Galatians is, is just blunt and, and it beats you over the head. Romans is more precise, it's accurate, it's like a sniper rifle, it'll, it'll take you out clean. But Galatians is like a battle axe, it is coming at you hard and fast. That's what Galatians is like. And here, I say that because in Romans 8.17, he's going to say that those who are justified are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Which is to say this idea of being an heir... It's a really important theme to how Paul explains the gospel. So what does it mean to be an heir? Of course, in our terminology, we would say that uh, uh, to be an heir of something means that you are one to whom an inheritance is promised, right? If you are in the heir of such and such an estate or what have you, you are promised an inheritance that should jog your memory back to chapter three, verse fifteen, where he uses that analogy of, of a last will and testament, of, of sort of a, a covenant that's being given to inheritors upon the death of the owner, so to speak. Go back to Galatians three, fifteen. Remember what he says, to give it a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant or last will and testament, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Once the guy dies, you can't change the will, it has already become enacted, it's already ratified. And he goes on to explain... What that means for the people of God here. But he's pressing even further into that here. At the beginning of chapter 4. This idea of a last will and testament being given to those who are heirs. They are promised an inheritance. Notice what he says. Verse 1 of chapter 4 again. I mean... Well, let's back up verse 29 so you can get his flow of thought. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he has a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. What is he talking about? Well, he's using another familiar illustration, just like in chapter 3, using this idea of a will. He's using an illustration here. Imagine The owner of a a massive estate. Let's call his name Harold. Harold dies. He is the owner of of a lot of assets and properties. And he dies, and his heir apparent, Harold Jr., he's too young to take over. He's, let's say, he's like eight or nine years old. So, what happens with that estate? Harold Jr. is the rightful heir apparent to all that Harold Sr. owes uh, and owns, correct? But the, the estate is not given to him. Yet, why? Because he's not able to handle and not able to understand it. So what happens? That estate is then given and given to uh, guardians, to trustees, so to speak, to stewards. Until Harold Jr. is old enough. Until, as Paul says, the date set by his father So even though Harold Jr. is, yes, the owner of everything, because he is promised the inheritance, he is the owner by way of position, by way of of material sort of things that he owns because of his name, yet by the same token, because of his age, he doesn't really differ that much from one of the servants of the house, from the, the butler or the maid, that's what Paul is saying. Even though he's the owner of everything, this this Harold Jr. guy, he owns everything, but because of his age, he has not reached that date set by the father. Even though he is the owner of everything, he's made to live under the guardianship, under the management of stewards, of, of governesses, of trustees. And until he comes to age, he lives under their supervision. Who are, they're supervising the estate. They are managing the inheritance that, yes, rightfully belongs to him. It's his. There's nothing changing that. There's nothing changing that for our Harold Jr. character. But until the time appointed that has been laid down by his father, he lives under that watchful eye of that steward, of that warden, of that governess, whatever you want to say there. And Paul says, this is exactly how we are to understand the function of the law prior to the arrival of Christ. Notice what he says, verse 3. In the same way also, I'm going to use this analogy, I want you to track with me here, as Paul is saying, track with me, because this is how we are to understand the law. Notice, in the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved, we were made to be subservient to the elementary principles of the world, that is, the law. But when the fullness of time had come, God Sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, have our inheritance. This is what Paul is trying to explain here. The children of God, Abraham's offspring, if you were a Jew, even if you didn't have all of these things in your mind, you would say you were an offspring of Abraham. They were heirs according to the promise made by Abraham, made to Abraham, I should say. They had an inheritance waiting for them, right? They were looking forward to the day when the promise would be fulfilled. But until the fullness of time had come, watch They were made to be enslaved, made to be subservient to the law. The law of Moses, we could say then, is the steward of the promise of God for the people of God until Jesus came in the flesh. It was the God-ordained system, so to speak, that kept watch over all of God's children. They were under its supervision. They were under its management, so to speak. You have the promise, it's waiting for them. They are rightful heirs, but according to God's inscrutable wisdom, according to God's sovereign design and the way in which he desired to unfold the plan of redemption, they were made to live under the supervision of the steward of that promise, the law. Until the date that the Father set, until the fullness of time had come. I think Paul's words here are so incredibly powerful. And especially in the sense that they clear up any lingering doubts, so to speak, as to how we are to understand how Old Testament saints are justified. How how were the likes of Jacob and Isaac and Joseph and all of the Old Testament characters that we're so fond of, how were they justified? Exactly like you and I. Just like Father Abraham. They were justified by faith. But because the appointed time had not yet arrived... The time set by the Father, as Paul has just said. They were required and called to live under that rigid edifice of the law. And, how, and, and what does the law command? What does the law demand? It demands sacrifices and offerings and following this system of compliance and obedience. And yet at the same time, what's at the heart of the law of Moses? You know, sometimes we have to, we sometimes think... That the law, if you, if you read books like Leviticus, right? I've made, the, I've made the joke before that our Bible reading, you know, our re- read through the year in a Bible, or read through the Bible in a year, plans, they fail when we get to the Leviticus. It's, you know, it's, it's tongue-in-cheek, but backed up by data, too. Because we have this idea that Leviticus is law, and it's dry, and it's, it's kind of boring, and we're doing these offering things. What, what, what business does it have to us? We're, in, we're 2023 Americans. What are, where are we reading... We get bored by it. But I think that that's, it's kind of a flawed view because at the heart of Leviticus is, is driving us to the point that this is stewarding the people to understand the promise. What's at the heart of Leviticus? Leviticus 16, which is what? The Day of Atonement. What is Leviticus 16 a picture of? Of Jesus on the cross. At the heart of the law of Moses was this. Beautiful liturgy, beautiful because also it was ugly, that required the people of God to slit the throats of lambs and goats on altars as an unmistakable sign of how they would be absolved. You see, at the heart... For all of these Old Testament sinners, justification was realized in the most graphic of ways. You know, believers would file into the tabernacle or into the temple and it would smell of viscera and violence and blood and they would have the right sacrifice in hand and they would bring it up to the priest and the priest would put it on the altar and slit his throat and the blood would spill over that altar as a picture of the way in which they would receive atonement. And it was at that moment... That their minds were being made to be sent back to the promise. That's the point. That's where their minds were meant to go. Back to all those stories that Abraham would tell his grandsons and great-grandsons. That he received him. That they, that they heard about Noah who received the promise. About Adam who received the promise. The promise of the seed of the woman that would come and crush the head of the serpent. And everything would be put back together again. This isn't to say that the gospel's found in the law, so to speak. Rather, this is, this is what the law stewards us to see. As a steward of the promise, the law does its job when those who are under it realize... That they have no other hope living under its demands. They have no hope except for one who would stand for them and die for them. The law is a killer. Paul says that. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the law kills, but the spirit gives life. We must realize this, that this is the way that God and his, again, his wisdom His sovereign design for the course of this world and for his very people. This is how he chose to reveal himself through the law. The law was a steward of God's revelation, of God's promise. And as such, the law is a a great and an apt description of who God is. That's what we're made to see when we read all the laws. It's describing who our God is and what he's like. It's, just, it's giving us a picture of his nature. In the sense that the law, if you read Leviticus, is unflinching. It's, there's no compromises. There's no exceptions. There's no sort of wavering in its demand and its expectation for holiness. And, 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 and obedience to all of his demands and all of the things that it's commanding us to follow. Which of course is just like God himself. Who is unchangeable in holiness. Who is perfect in holiness. The refrain of heaven as we read in Isaiah and Revelation is holy, 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 Lord God almighty. If we want to see what that looks like, read Leviticus and you'll see this is what we're supposed to follow. I can't do that. No one can. The law is stewarding us to see how great and how vast the holiness of God is. But the point of what Paul, I love this point. The point that Paul is striving to make is that the law's position as a steward, as, as a supervisor of the promise, was never meant to be permanent. Like the, like the estate owner. Again, uh, uh, Harold Sr., he passes away and he's leaving his estate to Harold Jr. And he leaves that estate though to be managed because Harold Jr. is not able to uh, manage it by himself. But baked into that whole scheme, so to speak, is the idea that that, that time of, of Harold Jr.'s management is temporary. Baked into that system, as Paul has Paul just said. There's an appointed time when there would no longer be any need for guardians and managers. Why? As he says, but he is under guardians and managers, verse 2, until the date set by his father. Eventually, that day is going to come. It's going to arrive. And when that day comes... The heir, a parent, Harold Jr., will then receive all that was already promised to him. His inheritance will become his. Not just in theory, or not just by promise, not just by way of trust, but it will actually be his so, what heir, Paul is, this is sort of an inference of what Paul's trying to say. What heir who has just inherited his father's estate, what heir who has just received all that he was once promised by his late dad, puts himself back under the supervision of stewards and managers once that inheritance is his? Don't you see? Paul's trying to get us, go back to Harold Jr. What if Harold Jr. says, you know what, on second thought, I'll go back to being managed. I'll go back to being supervised and, 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 uh, and uh, overseen by stewards and managers. And, uh, uh, because you know, even though I'm the owner of everything, I don't really want to live that way. You'd question the intelligence of Hale Jr., right? <laughs> you're the heir to all of this. But you're opting not to live like it? What are you doing? Paul asked them the same question. Look at verse 8. Galatians 4:8 formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, beautiful phrasing. How can you turn back again to the weak and elementary weak and worthless elementary principles principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more? How can you do that? How can you go back to what is weak and worthless? How can you go back to the things that had their time period and it already came up? Paul's speechless. You're like an heir to a massive estate deciding not to live as if you own everything. How can you do that? You see, the net result of the Judaizers' preaching was putting the Galatians back into bondage. They were losing sight of who they were in Christ. And they were doing so willingly. That's what God, that's what is getting Paul so riled up. You're going along with it. You're just following along with what they're teaching you. And you're not even putting it in context of what God has revealed through his son Jesus It was was incomprehensible for Paul to, to see that those who were justified, those who were redeemed, would want to turn back to what was oppressive and enslaving. Especially when they had already been given an inheritance that was infinitely better, infinitely better than what they could have ever imagined. You see... By putting themselves back into bondage to the law, the Galatians were fundamentally denying who they were in Christ. They are sons and daughters of God. You are heirs according to the promise. They were losing their identity. You don't even know who you are, Paul is saying. You don't even realize what you have in Christ. I would say, and I would hasten to say, I think sometimes we, we're in the same spot. We don't even know who we are in Jesus. If God's word of promise, again, I'll try and sum this up. If God's word of promise given to Abraham thousands of years ago was all about Christ. And Paul's already proven that it was. Galatians 3, 7 through 9. You can see, he's saying, that promise given to Abraham, it was all about Jesus. So we can say that the promise to Abraham was all about Jesus. If that is true, when Jesus came, that promise was brought to completion. It was brought to fruition. Verse 4 of chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a woman. Born under the law. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That phrase, the fullness of time, equals the same phrase that he used back in verse 2. Until the date set. References to the same idea. The appointed time that was set in advance when when the heirs would receive the promise. Would receive the inheritance in full. So we can say that when Jesus came to this earth and he was born of a virgin mother and he lived according to all of the laws of his day and he was baptized with all of our sin and disgustingness, he is fulfilling, he is bringing to completion the promise that was made to Abraham. It's that time when the inheritance is given to the heirs, now no longer the promise or the inheritance is under the stewardship of the law. Why? Romans 10:4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So now that Christ has come, now that the fullness of time had come, what? The time for guardians and managers is over. The era of holiness by stewardship is done. Why? Because in Christ, holiness is a gift by the word and by the spirit. And when we receive that gift, that gift of grace that brings the righteousness of God into our hearts and souls, who does the work of making sure that we live according to the holiness of God? Not the law and all of its stringent rigidity, the Spirit. Spirit that lives inside you and me. And now we have this wonderful new way in which we relate and commune with God the Father. Now, absolution and atonement is not realized by graphic law keeping. By bringing our lamb and bringing it into this place and slitting his throat. And seeing the blood run everywhere. How are we atoned? How are we absolved? By bare faith. And what the true and better Lamb of God did for us. That's what Paul has just said. Because of what he did to redeem you and me. Who were living under this supervision of the law. By he himself becoming the curse of the law for us. We are received as sons and daughters of God. That's who you are. We are accepted as heirs of the promise because the promise was fulfilled in him, in Jesus. And to put his, his seal on this, put his stamp of approval on this, as, as, on our status as his heirs, notice what happens. He sends his spirit into our hearts. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. These verses are powerful and momentous. We're no longer slaves under the strict supervision of the law. We've been set free from all that. We have been adopted as God's sons and daughters. We are daughters and sons of the thrice holy God. We belong to him. And friends, if you, if you this morning believe in the gospel of Jesus as the only source of your salvation from sin, this is who you are. You are heirs according to the promise. You are on the receiving end of an inheritance that is infinitely beyond whatever you can imagine or think. Is an inheritance of full absolution, of complete pardon, of free justification, of yes, right now forgiveness of sins. Is an inheritance that reveals the power of God for salvation, which is is nothing less than the gift of God's righteousness given to stinking sorry sinners like you and like me. There's an inheritance that Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading, that is kept in heaven for you. Oh, this is just so awesome. How is it kept in heaven? Remember what we went through in Hebrews? We have a priest who's standing for us. Now this inheritance. There's no questioning it. There's nothing touching it. There's nothing that can be altered by it. It's guarded in heaven by, yes, your king of kings and high priest himself, who stands, as it says in Hebrews chapter 9 and verses 27, he stands as a priest forever. What an what a awesome thought. It should stagger us. What God has given us in his son. And the whole point of all this, that Paul is trying to say, this is yours by faith. This inheritance is yours. By faith. Just like Abraham, who became an inheritor of the promise because he believed. Everyone after him has become an inheritor of the promise by believing You can't work your way into it. You can't do some sort of thing to make sure that you belong to it. You can never do enough to deserve it. But also, this this should also blow our minds. By the same token, this inheritance cannot be rescinded or revoked. The inheritance, God's word of promise, again, is not given on the basis of performance. We're We're not servants or employees. What has Paul just said? We're not slaves. We are sons. We are daughters. We are heirs who receive the promised inheritance as a gift. And that's how we always receive it. You see, as Paul saw it, the problem with the Judaizers and their commitment to earning their right standing with God by works of the law, by things that they could do, by their performance, by how well they were following all of the Mosaic code, by how well they were keeping all of those little intricacies of the law and the traditions of their fathers. The problem was what? That they were putting themselves and they were putting the Galatians by preaching that message, they were putting them back under guardians and managers. (laughs) They were reverting back to being stewarded by the law. Instead of being stewarded by the spirit. Because the law had already been sent packing by Christ. The law was a temporary guardian. Meant to steward the people of God until the fullness of time had come. But now as Paul said. The fullness of time had come. And the person of Jesus. <laughs> So, therefore, to look to that law, to look to that code, to look to that steward of the promise as if it holds in and it of itself the essence of what God wants to give us or what God wants to know about who he is, it's more than a little foolish. Oh, foolish Galatians! Why are you looking to the steward of the promise when the promise is here in Jesus when the inheritance is yours through him? law has its place yes it remains the steward of God's standard of of his holiness as Paul says in Romans 7 it is holy and righteous and is good but the law is not representative of the promise of the inheritance it's all about Jesus the promise is all about Jesus and he's the fulfillment of that promise as well as the substance of it as well And it is through him and what he's done that we are what we are and have what we have. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. My friends, this is who you are this morning. Just stop and think about what Paul is trying to communicate. Not just to these Galatians, but to you in 2023. You are an heir of God the Father. Because of what Jesus did. And I couldn't help but think about this. Remember that story, that familiar story from the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. If you want to know what it means to be an heir, what it means to be a son. Remember what happens to the prodigal who returns home and he's greeted. Remember what he prays? If I can only be accepted in your sight. Let me just be a hired hand. Let me be a slave in your house, Dad. And then I'll just go about my business. What happens? He's welcomed by his father as a son. Uh, Let me just read it. Luke 15, verse 20. And he, the prodigal, arose and came to his father. Of course, if you know the story... He's bottomed out. He's at his lowest of low ends. And he decides, even my dad's servants are living better than I am. But while, verse 20, he, the prodigal, was still a long way off, his father saw him. And felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. and Put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is is us, my friends. The prodigal who returns home and he's greeted, not by a new system of stewardship. You know, we imagine, and I think even in our minds, we, we think that the father should be like, okay, I'm going to give you a six-month trial basis. Let's see how well you earn it. Let's see how well you can deserve my favor. Let's see, let's see how well, uh, how good your performance is. And then, and then we'll, we'll plan a party six months down the road. And we'll see where we are. Isn't that how we operate with God? I hope God accepts me. I gotta, let me, my friends. Exactly what happens here with the prodigal son is what happens whenever a sinner repents. He is brought in and he's given a robe. A robe that's not his, it's a robe of righteousness. It's a robe that belongs to him only by way of the Father giving it to him. And he's given a ring, he's given a seal that he belongs to the family, that he belongs to that estate. And he gives shoes so that he can live for him. (laughs) It's a picture of who you are when you are given the righteousness of Christ and the spirit of Christ and you're given the call to yes, follow and live for God for the rest of your lives. This is who you are this morning. You are an heir of God through God. (laughs) The old commentator John Stott he sums it up perfectly. The way to live the Christian life he says is To remember who and what we are. You're not a slave. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're not an orphan. You are an heir. You have been born again into the family of God. If I could urge you this morning, remember who you are in Christ. This is is what we are called to do every single week, every Sunday. I I feel it all the time. Hopefully you feel it. I want you to feel in your bones this, this time of remembrance of who we are in Jesus. Not according to anything that we could do or have done or could ever muster up in ourselves. You are who you are and you have what you have because of Christ alone, period. And it's a gift of grace. And every time we walk through these doors and we hear that beautiful message and we walk out of them, we should walk out knowing and remembering exactly who we are in Him. Heirs according to promise. My friends, do not live. Live under the enslaving power of thinking that it's your performance that's getting you to, to receive this inheritance, to receive this beautiful promise of Christ friends, it's a gift that is given to you exactly where you are, as you are. And the Spirit and the Word does its work. The Spirit and the Word is the way in which we receive the promise of righteousness given to us. Let us live according to that promise. Let us live according to that announcement of good news. Church, remember who you are. Let us pray.